Sometimes <clears throat> it is hard to speak words after an anthem like that. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzin Norgay they became the first people confirmed to have reached the summit of Mount Everest. As we, we know, they were not the last. In the 1990s, Nepal lifted its one tight, once tight restrictions on climbing the legendary mountain in order to boost tourism dollars. More than 4,000 people have scaled the summit since Hillary and Norgay conquered the mountain. One result of this commercial influx has been the erosion of the traditional code of mountaineering. In the rush to the top, people who have paid quite a bit of money for the bragging rights, they will do anything it takes to get to the summit, including abandoning other climbers. David Sharp became a casualty of this modern mentality in March of 2006, the 34-year-old Engineer from Cleveland did manage to reach the summit on his own. However, he ran out of oxygen on his way back down 984 feet from the top. As he lay down, 40 climbers passed him by, too eager to achieve their own goals than to take a chance on using some of their oxygen to help someone else. As a result, David Sharp froze to death. According to Ed Vistris, who has scaled all 14 of the world's 8,000-meter peaks, Sharp's death is not unique. Passing people, he says, who are dying is not uncommon. Unfortunately, there are those who say, it's not my problem. I've spent all this money, and I am going to the summit. This attitude has produced sharp criticism in many climbers, including Sir Edmund Hillary. Hillary remarked, I think the whole attitude toward climbing Mount Everest has become rather horrifying. The people just want to get to the top. On my expedition, he said, there was no way you would have left a man under a rock to die. This morning, we arrive to chapter three in the book of Acts, in the beginning of the post-Pentecost ministry of the church, commissioned by God as witnesses and empowered by the Spirit. Disciples are now to go out and to travel with a particular code, which will involve singing a new song and practicing the practice of noticing. Throughout Acts, we will see the willingness of God to invade our every day and our every moment. Let's see now what the Spirit is up to. If you'd like to read along, this will be on page 886 in the Bible under one of the chairs in front of you. Let's see what the Spirit is up to as two men now go about their daily routine. Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. 
Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts and our minds, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. St. Dorothy's Rest is an Episcopal retreat center about an hour north of San Francisco. I had an opportunity to to be there just once, nestled among old-growth redwoods and perched high on a hilltop above the Pacific Ocean. St. Dorothy's is a breathtaking place to be on retreat. The first morning there, it was hard to first not be taken by the giant redwoods. They stretched toward the heavens in all of their splendor and majesty in their strength, representing uh, long life. They are clothed in majesty. All I could see was their strength and steadiness, presence, and beauty. But in time, not only did I see the big, but also the little. A little sprout of new green growth at my feet along with some tiny little pine cones. I eventually noticed insects above me that my eyes began to take in as they began to recalibrate. Sensing God's concern and attention for not only the big and strong and easily noticed, but also for the little, the easy to miss, the poor in spirit, the meek. It was a moment of having eyes that came awake. How I long to have that kind of vision more frequently. This healing is the first and longest miraculous cure described in the book of Acts. Miracles defy explanation. They're rare and surprising. A miracle is an extraordinary act of God. C.S. Lewis once explained, that a miracle is something unique that breaks a pattern so expected and established that we hardly consider the possibility that it could ever be broken. Luke's chief concern is to describe the daily routine by which the lame beggar is placed outside the temple gate. This man is excluded from the temple and all it symbolized for decades. He has been a familiar sight, sitting outside every day, begging at the temple gate, called beautiful. 
Humanly speaking, this case was hopeless. Doctors could do nothing for him. He had been handicapped since birth, was now more than 40 years old, we will learn in the next chapter of Acts, and was so disabled that he had to be carried everywhere, presumably by family or friends. Since temple prayers and almsgiving characterize Jewish piety, Beggars are found outside the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon, for these are the folks most likely to give alms to the, to the poor, folks who believed that they, by in so doing, might receive some sort of favor from God. Disciples are watched, especially by those in need. As Peter and John were about to enter the, enter the temple, he asked them for money. Instead of emptying their pockets, Peter and John are going to offer this man change that will change his life forever. As this man follows his desperate daily pattern of begging, it's interrupted with the words from Peter, look at us. Luke makes much in this story about Peter's eye contact. I, like many of you, I suspect find it incredibly difficult to know how to best care for someone who is homeless. Perhaps making eye contact and saying hello, conferring dignity and acknowledging the humanity of another is a good place to start. For this is a human being with a personal story and deep longings. Eyes meet at this moment. Peter and John gaze at this man, and the man looks attentively back at them. The man anticipates that he will receive some sort of economic gain. Peter then commands, in the name of Jesus, walk. The disciples do not stand back and watch and wait for the man to walk and struggle to his feet. Rather, what does Peter do? He extends to him his right hand. He takes him by the hand and helps him up. One commentator points out the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. It's a gesture of love by one who gets to participate in God's work of healing and restoration. The man stands and begins to walk. He enters the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now he is truly seen. Peter then seizes the opportunity to preach. His sermon fills out the rest of chapter 3, just as the Pentecost event had been the text for his first sermon. This man's healing will be the text for his second sermon. Both were mighty acts of God to which Peter is glad to bear witness. He makes a big deal about Jesus. He gives all the credit to Jesus Christ. The work of the witnesses was to see. You know how sometimes you keep hearing something over and over and over again, and it finally grabs your attention? Maybe it's a, a scripture verse that you keep hearing at every turn, no matter, no matter where you're going. Perhaps it's a word, perhaps it's a, a phrase. The phrase paying attention is one example of this for me. 
Several summers ago, I heard that phrase everywhere I went. I came upon it as I read Eugene Peterson. I was summoned to it as I heard a sermon at Hollywood Prez. I heard it again when a retreat speaker, Mark Laberton, summed up that the whole of the Christian life could be summed up by that phrase, paying attention, paying attention to God and paying attention to our neighbors. It sounds so deceptively simple. Pay attention, go do it. Yet barriers abound. And here are just some of the lies, I believe, that hinder our ability to be more fully able to love God and to, and to love neighbor. Lies and barriers that we need to pay attention to. The world seduces us with an artificial urgency that makes us think that we can never stop. Or to think that we can only stop when we are finished and we never then stop because our work is never really finished. Our culture shouts that action and accomplishment are better than rest, that doing something, anything, is better than doing nothing. The busier we are, the more important we feel. And because we do not rest, we lose our way. And sometimes we lose our joy and it gets harder and harder to love people and we potentially lose the anchoring, centering reality of our lives that Jesus is the hero of the story, not us. We try to carry more weight than we were ever meant to carry. We forget our limitations and push ourselves beyond what we are meant to handle, which brings consequences. Consequences to our relationship, consequences to our body and to our minds and to our souls. Friends, this is not the good news of Jesus Christ. The call is to receive the life that God has given to us. Every year I gather with my company of pastors, a pastoral formation group I have journeyed with for 12 years now. You've heard me share, some of you, about this group. It's a gift of time and space for study, prayer, and reflection, and a necessary time for rest. I had a memorable encounter with a stranger when returning one year from one of these gatherings. I normally park my car at the airport, but this time, I don't remember why I did this, this time, this one and only time, I caught a super shuttle for my return home back when Uber and Lyft were not available at the Austin airport. Our driver, our super shuttle driver, <laughs> I could not say that six times fast. Our <laughs> super shuttle driver, was a big, pleasant, middle-aged African-American man. There were three passengers. Our van traveled in silence for the first two drop-offs, but then I moved to the very front of the van so that I could more easily give directions. I learned that my driver's name was Reginald. We began talking. 
He asked if I had been on vacation. I explained that I had been to a meeting. He asked me if I had been to a doctor's meeting. <laughs> I chuckled like you just did and shared that I work at a church. He asked what kind of church. I said a Presbyterian church. He thought that was fascinating and remarked that I must love my work. I said, I do. He then asked, what do you do? Now for many of this, well, you, this what do you do question is a simple, straightforward question, but when you work at a church and when you are at a pastor at a church, depending on the viewpoint of the person asking the question, this, the answer to this question can stop a conversation faster than a nanosecond. So in hopes, in big hopes of not initiating a full shutdown, I shared that I do quite a few different things, but that part of what I do is to spend time with people who are hurting, grieving, sick, and in some kind of transition. Reginald was even more fascinated. And then after a bit of silence, Reginald began to tell me that his dad died of cancer last year and how he learned so much from his dad. I asked, what did you learn? He talked about how we learned how to be a man and what to do to care for his family after his dad was gone. He talked about speaking at his dad's funeral and how at the viewing he pulled up a chair next to the casket and had a cup of coffee and just sat next to him. And he noted how he looked into the casket and when he did, he saw nothing but peace. I was his last drop off for the night and by now I noticed that Reginald was driving at a very leisure speed. Next thing I knew, he was sharing about his 81-year-old mom, who was now showing signs of Alzheimer's. I asked how he was doing caring for his mom. He said it was hard, but hit that he was thankful for the opportunity to care for her. He talked about all that he sees and learns from the people that he drives around the city each day and all that he learns and sees as he lives with his family, all the gifts that he sees every day. And then we arrived to where I live. As Reginald pulled out my bag and we said goodbye, I told him I would pray for him and that I would pray that God would give to him all the love and grace that he was going to need as he cared for his mom. And I thanked him and told him to press on. And as I then began to walk away from him pulling my bag, Reginald asked, what did you say? What was that last thing you said? I turned and said, press on. Reginald then walks toward me and holds out his wrist and with the help of the headlight from the van, he shows me a little silicone bracelet around his wrist that has etched on it the words, press on. We smiled together. I asked him where he got it. He shared he had just found it that day in a bathroom. We decided God wants him to press on. <laughs> and we parted and said goodbye.
Friends, I share this not because of anything special I did. I did so very little. I just asked a few questions, listened, and cared, but I could have so easily missed out on a divine appointment with Reginald and probably would have in my weariness the weeks prior. But I was able to pay attention. I was able to be present with Reginald and to listen to his heart because I was a bit rested and had recently been reminded of the life-giving, God's life-giving rhythm of rest and abiding in Jesus, which sets us free to love and to serve. Friends, God is present in our world. God is not hiding The problem is with us. We do not seem to notice. We need to learn how to notice and to engage in what Richard Peace calls the spiritual discipline of noticing God. Brother Lawrence calls this practicing the presence of God. For noticing may be the first step in bringing someone the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God as we see others, ourselves, and even God differently, people we never noticed before because we never paid attention to them, perhaps suddenly matter to us in ways that are hard to explain. Summer is a really good opportunity for us to pull back and reflect. It's more difficult for many of us to do this during the school year, during that time of year when for many of us we jump on the treadmill of life every morning, we run as hard and as fast as we can until it spits us off exhausted at the end of every day. It's really important to learn how to reflect and to fine-tune and to grow in our ability to listen to God. How is it with your soul? How is it with your relationships? Are you living with the expectation that God will move and God will speak? We are to be a people who can pay attention. Discipleship begins with attention. Learning to pay attention to God and to people around us in order to not live self-absorbed lives. The bigger of a hurry we are in, the less likely we will be to help someone in pain or even notice someone in need. There are practices that we can devote ourselves to. In order to pay attention and encounter the Lord, we can go away on retreat I have this built into my annual rhythm. I know some of you do. It's a really good thing to do as an occasional practice. But we also have to learn how to pay attention and to connect with God in our everyday lives and to embrace moments of solitude in order to nurture our love relationship with the Lord. Our leading and loving and serving then comes out of a natural overflow from that place. One way, just one way, that you can practice hearing the voice of God on a daily basis is with the prayer of examine. 
The examine is a way of prayerfully reviewing your day in order to grow in understanding of how God is present to you. It's to be used as a time of prayer and a way of being with God. We're going to engage this in a few moments in this worship service. I encourage you to give it a try this week as a way of paying attention to where God's Spirit is at work in your everyday experiences. For friends, God is with us, intimately with us, guiding us, whispering to us, nudging us, if only we could hear. The world is aching for the generosity of a people with a capacity for paying attention. With all of our comings and our goings this summer, let's pray for one another to have eyes that come awake and for God to give us his vision as we encourage one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. For the work of witnesses is to see. Pray with me. Oh God, we do not want to miss the life that you set before us. May our eyes be open to a new way of living in this world that is here because of Jesus Christ. Help us to pay attention and to follow where you lead. Give to us your vision for life and the grace to live your gospel. We pray this for one another in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all of God's people together we say, amen. amen.